Our organization is holding a half-day board retreat. As a newer executive director, I'm wondering if it's appropriate for me to attend the board retreat. I'm wondering if the board might want its own time building their relationships with each other. It would be also helpful if you could elaborate on any other staff who should also be present. It's an interesting question because surprisingly, I, I hear this a lot as well. I get this question a lot and it, it definitely is people who are, are newer in the role, but my short answer is absolutely you should be there as the executive director. I, you're a partner with the board. You, I, I don't even understand. I mean, I, I guess the only exception to this, I was going to say, I don't understand why you wouldn't be there um, unless the board just really doesn't understand how the, both parties work together and that, that the board will be missing some key information without you there. And you also need to know what direction the board's headed and help guide that a bit because, you know, boards that are guided by their executive directors oftentimes um, do a better job. So, so it isn't, you know, you just get to kind of wipe your hands of that. You have an active role in that. So, so that would be my, my bottom line is that you really should be there. I mean, the only exception I can think of is if there was, I, I, assuming this is a positive board retreat, right? And it's about good things, but if for some reason it's a board retreat that's talking about your poor performance, although you're a new ED, I'm hoping they're not doing that yet. But, you know, it, unless there's something about your, your performance or an issue they're having um, with you or staff or something that's really confidential, uh, or, or maybe even your compensation. I mean, that's, that's the only thing I can think of that perhaps is why you wouldn't want to be there. And I would hope that they would communicate that to you so you don't have to uh, read between the lines. Um, what, what are your thoughts, Andy? Could you, could you imagine what kind of hilarious goals and activities a board just left to its own devices would concoct for a nonprofit? Oh. It scares me. It like makes me break out in hives. It's awful thinking of that. Oh, <laughs> it would just be. It would have no. It would just. It would. It would have no basis in reality. It would be completely random and hilarious. I think you should honestly. I think you should do that just as an experiment. Let the board do their own retreat. Come up with their like. Who's going to take notes? Nobody. You're going to get at the end of it, and they're going to say, they're going to say, "Well, we met." <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> there's there's going to be no documentation. It's just going to be a blank sheet of paper. You could do whatever you want. I think this is actually an interesting new strategy we should <laughs> recommend to people. It's just let the board go off and do their own thing and see what happens. But but yeah, no, I I agree not to be facetious. I agree 100%. The 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 primary role of the executive director when participating in a board retreat like that is because the board doesn't know anything. And exactly. you're you're new, so you probably don't know anything either. You know less than they do about some things, but it's your job to steer the organization. It's your job to make sure that the work that needs to get done is getting done. And and a lot of times they're just kind of coming in and they're there for the snacks and and it's your job to kind of help steer and make sure that you're going in the right direction. So this is your opportunity to sort of learn about what your board members are interested in, what what parts of the planning process they are spending the most time thinking about that kind of stuff. So yeah, absolutely. You don't want to miss that. That would be, that would be a tragic mistake, but as far as, so what is your opinion on what other staff members should be there? I've seen it. I've seen it all different ways. 
I have too. And in this, this goes back to, I really think it depends what is the agenda for the board retreat. Because if, if it is just truly in board, like board training, how to be an effective board, then it, maybe that's what the retreat is. And the other staff doesn't need to be there um, other than the ED. But but if it's if it's any kind of planning or maybe it's even a tr it's a deep dive into the organization's finances and so then someone who holds a financial position if you have that luxury in your nonprofit like needs to be there or or it's a you know the common one right board members who need to fundraise and be willing to open you know their own checkbooks and and make connections uh then if you have a development person or someone who kind of serves in that capacity or a consultant who does that, they should be there. So, so I, it's just, I think it's so contingent on what, what is the goal of the retreat? Uh, and like you said, Andy, it's like, it's all over the map. And I think that's probably because agendas for this kind of stuff are all different. Yeah. I mean, so my instinct has always been for strategic planning sessions. So if you're really going to do full on strategic planning, the, the main staff that run the programs the development team, like anybody that's responsible for any big picture things should probably be in the room. They don't necessarily get to participate. It's, you don't, because you don't want them to dominate the conversation. But in a lot of cases, they're the only ones that really know what's going on on the ground. And they can provide that detail of what's happening in this particular program. Why aren't we meeting our goals in this particular program that's not being filtered necessarily through the executive director for what the board members happen to remember from a board meeting three months ago. So, and, and we've had this conversation about uh, just regular board meetings too, is like how many are staff allowed to be in board meetings and how many staff can be in board meetings. And, and I think my position there, I don't remember what you said, but I think my position was always, yeah, why, why make it a secret process? Like get, get the, get the staff, they can sit and listen. They don't get to vote and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be influencing the situation by any conversation or any, anything, but they need to, they need to be there to see who the people in the room are, to understand what the board's concerns are. That's, that's a really good learning opportunity for staff as well. I think it's, yeah, I, when I, years ago, when I worked at a, a nonprofit, I mean, we always had a senior staff, it would be at the board meetings. And so I, I do think that to me, it just in general, I don't know why you wouldn't have them there. And it feels like a huge missed opportunity if they're not there. I think sometimes I notice executive directors play this. Um, sometimes they get into protective mode, depending on their board dynamics, like they want to protect or shield, they feel like they're the shield from the between the board and the staff. And I mean, certainly there is a, you know, an order of how, you know, who is boss and how that chain of command works. But, but to not have some of those key people, especially with planning, I mean, that that would make no sense at all. Um, and I think maybe defining those roles at the beginning of a retreat, if, if it is a planning retreat, would make perfect sense um, and you know would just be a smart idea for making sure everyone's on the same page and so staff and board members there are comfortable with with the roles of each party uh, you know I'm thinking about the, uh, the other part of this question right where the person mentioned about maybe the board wants to time building their relationships with each other I, I again would go back to uh, the executive director's 
relationship with the board is so critical that that I would hate to not see that ED present to also build that relationship. And if if boards really want to do that, I mean, I guess they can do it in other ways as well. Like, I mean, there could be an hour, like, let's all go and have happy hour after we're done with the retreat, or let's go and before our board meeting have, you know, just sort of a time for us all to break bread together and enjoy each other's company. And I mean, there, there's ways that the board, you can be intentional about the board having time to build those relationships. Uh, but, but I don't think that that needs to be at the exclusion of you in any way. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. This episode is truly jam packed, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right in. The shortest intro we've ever done. Enjoy this episode. Today's podcast is sponsored by Immunize Nevada. Arm yourself by getting your annual flu vaccine. It protects you, your family, and those working on the front lines. Do your part. Get your flu vaccine by Nevada Day. Visit nvflufighter.org for more information and to find free and low-cost clinics. operations director for a mid-sized nonprofit and handle our human resources activities. It seems that our development director position turns over more frequently than other staff positions, and our CEO asked me if we should consider including a non-compete agreement in the paperwork when we hire a development director. What are your thoughts on this, and is this even acceptable in the nonprofit sector? I, I guess it would be acceptable. I've seen it. Um, I, I think they're yucky. I always just get the you sense. You have? Yeah, I've seen. You've I've seen s- it? I've seen non-competes for development staff. Um, but the, so what a non see the, here's the problem with the non-compete. When, first of all, they're, they may or may not be enforceable. So there are very specific instances. So, like in Nevada, for example, Nevada's a right-to-work state, and there's some other rules that govern the way non-competes work. So for telling somebody, because so basically you can't tell somebody you're not allowed to get hired, right? You can't prevent somebody from getting a job. So there, are, you can put some restrictions on it, and, and if you're putting a non-compete together, you're going to be talking to an attorney anyway. It's not, this is not something I would recommend that you just download from the internet, because you need to understand exactly what it can and can't do. Uh, and an attorney is going to be able to, to walk you through your state and your particular requirements and what you're going to achieve with a non-compete. Um, I personally think they're icky, only because you're, the non-compete shows up uh, while you're giving somebody a job. Right. You don't you know, the non-compete is part of the onboarding process, part of the new hire process. And you've just signaled to your new development director, um, this job is going to be miserable. You're going to hate it and you're going to quit. And the way I'm going to prevent you from quitting is to keep you from getting another job. 
with, with nothing on the back end, with no benefit to you whatsoever other than I'm hiring you right now. And that is probably the last thing that I would want a new candidate coming into my organization to be feeling. I don't want you walking into my organization thinking, God, I, I might have made the wrong decision. <laughs> is this, is this a, you know, is a non-compete like the equivalent of a prenup? I mean, you know, I'm just sitting here. I have this, this question in my head and I, I'm not, I'm not being uh, serious here, but, but that's what I'm sort of feeling like is it, it in many ways signals, I, it feels like we already don't trust you or we've had issues in the past or, or whatever. And we're so super like trying to protect ourselves and our donors. And I guess, I mean, so on a really, really practical level, and this, this is a question that I don't know, Andy, if you've got an answer to, but, but it's what's weighing on me with this, with this question that the person wrote in on donors are individuals or companies or whomever is giving that have their own rights to give or not give. And I know that relationships can influence that. But at the end of the day, nobody, I hope nobody is like putting a gun to a donor's head saying you've got to, you've got to give. So, so, and you look at all of the research and studies out there, and at least from like an individual perspective, it talks about most people who donate are giving to multiple organizations as it is. And, and so the idea of this sort of underlying, we own our donors, and it, it bothers me. That, that feels wrong, and it's just not accurate. It, it's just, guess what? Nobody, and when you hear organizations say, oh, you're going to steal my donors, really? Like, donors have the independent choice. And yeah, maybe that's influenced by a relationship, but at the end of the day, it oftentimes also has to do with the donor's own interest and passions and desires and whether they care about a cause. And, and hopefully you've hired an ethical enough person hopefully somebody maybe that abides by AFP's code of ethics that you don't even have to, this is a non-issue. Yeah. So I think the position that, I mean, what you're, what you're describing is that a, when you bring in a development director, the reason you're hiring that person is because of that person's network of contacts, right? That, that, that person has a network of donors that they frequently work with and they'll be able to get access to those donors. And then you don't want them to leave to go to another organization because they're going to take that set of donors with them. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And I, yes, yes, I, yes, I'll leave it at that. Yes. I mean, I have some, my, my, my caveat is just that I, I think that's the way most organizations and especially boards think or people who haven't been in fundraising, like, Oh, who has, I want to hire that person because they've got a huge Rolodex. And I just, that, I feel like we need to like debunk that and push back on that because yes, they do have that whole list, but that does not mean like A, that they ethically should be going after those people or B, you know, it's, it's free will and it's more than just the person. It's also the cause and the mission. And if you have one person that goes from animals an animals organization doing development work to someone who goes to hospice, as an example, like that's completely different. And, and if the donor really is in love with that person and chooses to follow them, great, but it doesn't mean like they've been stolen. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I mean, honestly, if you're hiring a development person because they have a big Rolodex, I mean, all of the donors see them coming. <laughs> they know who it is. Yes. <laughs> like, that maybe, maybe that's not what you want is that, oh, here she comes. <laughs> we know what she's going to ask, right? Who's she with now? Who knows? But she's going to come yeah. and ask us for something. Um, which is probably not, which is probably not a good relationship for them to have. So, so I think, you know, I think our, our answer is unilaterally no, that, that a using, using some sort of punitive, like you said, um, pre Victorian era prenuptial agreement <laughs> is probably not an, uh, is not an effective way to get your development person to stick around a little bit longer. I think there are a lot of better ways that you can do it that aren't that, that don't sour the relationship from the beginning. And as you're saying, just like address the wrong problem. So your, your job is, okay, so you're the operations director handling human resources. I think you need to have a conversation with your CEO about perhaps coaching. Like, what is it that, what is it that you can do to make the next development hire really successful? Like, what can you train them on to make them do things better? What can you figure out to help motivate them? How can you help them cultivate their resources so that they're better at their job? Like, how can the CEO help support that position rather than just expecting it to be like you rub the magic lamp and the genie comes out with a bunch of money and then after three wishes, they're gone and you have to find another <laughs> lamp? Yes. Yes. I, I, I love that, right? Having, because it sounds like there's some education to be done. And in all fairness, and, and I think this oftentimes we see this, especially not knowing if the CEO um, or the board, not knowing how much they understand development and the way it works. I think this probably would be a non-issue if they actually understood. And if they understood, and I go back to again, we should, we should bookmark it and put it in show notes, like the AFP code of ethics. It addresses all of these things. And if, if you wanna make sure you're hiring someone who is going to represent you and your organization in the best light, and it certainly, it is by adhering to some of the the just sound practices we're talking about and and really finding ways to uh, re reward like you said in a way that is is in line with the code of ethics and isn't just like you know you get a, a portion of every donation that you bring in but you know something that's that's really reasonable but but in all fairness, like I'm also trying to put myself in the shoes of you get people who come from sales backgrounds or the for-profit world and they, that's just the way they think and it's the way they've been trained and taught and it's not bad, it's different and it's just an it's opportunity to educate and coach. up with some solutions that are a win-win for my finance committee, as well as our outsourced bookkeeper. The finance committee meets monthly to review the financials. The challenge is that we can never close the previous month in time to get them the closed financials a week before their meeting. My board treasurer is frustrated and is starting to send me disgruntled emails about not being able to get the information to the committee in time. How often should our finance committee meet to review financials and does the time of month matter? Would it be okay to give them estimated financials and not a fully closed month? Hmm. So it sort of depends on your finance committee and kind of how much of the work that they're doing. Um, 
if if I mean, I think the scheduling of the finance committee should be contingent on whether or not you've got the period closed before they meet. I don't know why you would have a finance committee meeting monthly on the fifth of the month if it's impossible for you to get your month closed by the fifth. Um, there's nothing magic about the beginning of the month, uh, it, but it, it sort of depends on how much work they're doing for you too. It sounds like it sounds like you, they're expecting you to have everything finished and ready so that they can take a look at it. Um, so, so just, I mean, the easy solution is just reschedule the finance committee to later in the month when, when the stuff's going to be finished. Um, how often should they meet to review financials? I don't, I, I mean, it de again, depends on the finance committee and the kind of work that they're doing in larger organizations. Finance committees may meet quarterly. I think, I think less than quarterly is probably, I don't know that I'd want to do that necessarily because you want, you want to at least show them quarterly information, but but if it's if it's a lot of work to close the month, uh, if there's a lot of transactions that need to be put in that you're doing a lot of complicated allocations and moving things from program to program, and it's, it takes a lot of stuff, and you know, God forbid you have any government grants that don't actually pay you until the 10th or the 15th the following month, and so you've got to do all of that stuff at the end of the month so that you're billing them for what they're supposed to be billed for. Um, it's not like, it's not like it's just, you know, you bounce the, the bounce, the checking account and you're done. Um, so it could, it could take a long time to get it done. In which case, you know, if, how often do you want to run through that whole process and get it done quarterly or monthly or whatever? There's nothing magic about quarterly. There's nothing magic about monthly. It's really what, what your, your finance committee is comfortable with. Um, as for estimated financials, I don't know that I would want to give anybody estimated financials unless, uh, because the, you're you're then doing one more step, right? That's you have to create the estimated financials. You have to make them look pretty because what comes out of the system is never what you want to show somebody. So there's always there's always some formatting and stuff that needs to happen at the end of the period. Um, I think that would just be an extra step, and I wouldn't. I would definitely move the the finance committee before I considered doing estimated financials. Plus, estimated financials are always going to be it's going to make your finance committee twice as long too, because you're going to review the final financials from the previous meeting and then the estimated financials for the current meeting, which would just be a, I don't know. I don't know that I would want to do that at all. I feel like in my experience working with organizations, most of them do not have a finance committee meeting monthly. And so to your point, Andy, I don't know if it's even just large ones. I mean, I think I, I see the, the monthly finance committee meetings happening when there's some financial struggle, challenges, issues that need to be resolved, right? Then, then that makes sense. But monthly feels like, ah, that feels like a whole lot to me. So it, it, maybe this is an opportunity to kind of revamp all of it. And, and I'm also wondering if the person who wrote this is feeling the pressure of, I, I think so many organizations, they feel like if they have monthly board meetings, they want the finance committee or whomever to give a report at the board meeting about the financial situation. So it's making me wonder, is it the board meeting dates that are getting in the way of, of the whole timing of this, right? Like maybe the finance committee feels like they have to meet before each board meeting. And I, I, it just sounds like there's some room for conversation. And if that board treasurer is getting disgruntled, uh, great opportunity to 
problem solve it together because uh you know i don't think this this the weight of this all falls on your shoulders i i think it's an opportunity for everyone to get buy-in and, and for you to be just honest about the challenges of why practically speaking this doesn't work and and perhaps some a, a recommendation or two about how to how to shift this to make it more um painless on everybody yeah and it, it's a a good point about when the board meetings are scheduled because you're you're right it probably is that the finance committee needs to see their materials review them and then they're making the presentation to the board at the board meeting which may be you know a day later or a couple of days later so it's it's based on the board meeting schedule which i could see maybe not wanting to move that necessarily uh and but again it still comes down i think to the size of the organization so if it's an organization with an outsourced bookkeeper that means you may not have a ton of staff, which means that the board may still be in that weird interim period where they're doing some of the work, in which case they need to meet once a month because if they don't, nothing happens for a quarter, which could be too long. If if you're big enough that it's that that you can survive for a quarter without having the board direct you, uh, I'd always recommend the quarterly board meetings as well because there's no reason if the board, I know how much of how much of your adolescence you're in right now, how much activity the board needs to have, what they need to approve, all of the stuff that's happening at a board meeting. If it's not that much and you think that you'll survive and be okay, maybe it's time to look at quarterly board meetings as well. And then and then you can go to quarterly finance committee meetings. Um, so that, that's, that's an option depending on your size, but I recognize for a lot of small organizations, that's totally not gonna work. And I, I'm also wondering, I, I would hope that the outsourced bookkeeper, if you do kind of troubleshoot this together, that perhaps you bring them to the table for this, because I'm also thinking, practically speaking, they probably have several clients. So there's also, they need to be a part of the um, discussion because perhaps they don't have the time to turn things around quite as quickly as if you had someone who is full-time on staff doing it. So just another thing to keep in mind. I've been asked to join the board of an organization whose mission and services are really close to my heart. They're all wonderful people and the recruitment experience has been positive and organized. However, upon reviewing their financials, I can see that they have been operating at a deficit, about three and a half percent of their annual revenue for the last two years. They were able to share some projections around how they plan to fill the gap, but I'm not sure if it's a smart move to join a board in less than an ideal financial situation. Am I blowing things out of proportion? Should I run for the hills? Help. Run for the hills. Such a great expression. <laughs> I think we use that one a lot. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I felt like I wrote this question because I use that a lot. So anyway, I, so I always like to start before, before I like dive in. I, I do want to start and acknowledge a couple of things that really got me giddy excited since I'm a nerd about this stuff. Uh, with this question. So I love the fact that the organization recruiting you, uh, it sounds like it's been a really positive, thoughtful, as you say, organized process and experience. So kudos to them because so many organizations really lack in, in a proper board recruitment strategy. So, so kudos to them and, and kudos to you for asking these questions, because I, I think one of the, the big things I always share is 
is this isn't just a one-way selection process. It's, it's two ways. And you get to see, you know, if they're a good fit. And if there's things like this that you're uncomfortable with, then you really need to explore with yourself whether this is the right situation um, for you. So, so I guess that as far as are you blowing things out of proportion, I, I'm not here to tell you that or not you've got to answer that. But, but what I do think is really important to keep in mind is the fact that A, for the most part, nonprofits run into these sort of financial challenges fairly regularly, unless, unless it's some really well-oiled, well-funded, like promised promised revenue sort of situation which as we know just generally doesn't exist and as a board member you oftentimes have you have to deal with these tough situations and look at financial forecasting and help think through sustainability strategies for the future so i think it's a huge opportunity to actually help Help, help maybe guide this organization with, with some of your expertise or even, even your questions around it. Um, and I guess the other piece of advice I'd give is, is perhaps, there's, perhaps there's more questions you need to ask. I am, you know, everything from how did they get themselves in, into a, a place of operating at a deficit the last few years? Uh, what are, do they have an operating reserve? What are the expectations of the board when that happens? Because I've seen organizations where, you know, there's a deficit and then it's, they, they turn to their board and say, hey, we need you to help us fill the deficit or we need you to step up more. So, so you need to really ask some more questions, I think is, is really my bottom line answer. And then from there, see what you're comfortable with. But, but I guess kind of a, a final thought on this is that, there is never going to be a nonprofit that there aren't some sort of challenges or issues somewhere. So whether it's financial or uh, program impact in delivery or HR issues. So, so if you're risk adverse and really not comfortable with that kind of stuff, then is a nonprofit board for you? I think that's fantastic. You, you, you answered it almost exactly the same way I was going to answer it, it's especially the first part, which is thank you for being someone who is willing to read and understand nonprofit financials and then using that information to make a decision about whether or not you want to join an organization. That is, you're, if regardless of whether you join this organization or not, like that skill and that bringing that amount of commitment to your board is just absolutely phenomenal. And to be honest, the sector needs way more people like you. So thank you, first of all. Um, the only place that I would I mean, it kind of depends on this situation because three and a half percent of annual revenue might not be a lot of money depending on how big the organization is. Like, so if, if this is a kid, like a university, it's bringing in like it's, it's typical annual revenue is in the billions of dollars. Okay. 3.5% is going to be a lot of money. And that would be an area of real concern. Um, for a small organization, three and a half percent might not be too bad. Um, and the, the other thing that you might want to consider is that one of the differences between the big differences between a nonprofit and a for-profit is that the for-profit, when it makes profit at the end of the year, it pays that out as 
as dividends to shareholders. It, it does other things with the profit. The profit just, in many cases, if it's not directly invested back in the business, it, it, it disperses and it goes someplace. In nonprofits, and this is one thing that uh, finance people need to explain to their for-profit board members all the time, is that money has to be reinvested in the organization. And if you had a really hot year last year, if everything went really, really well, you may be sitting on a chunk of net assets that you need to spend down in future periods. Um, and that's not even going into the fact that when, when pledges are, when you're given pledges, that that actually hits as revenue, even though you don't make the collections until the money shows up later. So the revenue shows up on the, on the financial statements in the year that the pledge is made and not in the year that the money is returned for the received for that pledge, which, which is endlessly confusing to board members who don't understand that. So, so in, in a lot of cases, a 3%, three and a half percent uh, deficit for a couple of years in a row may be a completely legitimate spending down of net assets that were received in prior years. So you look at that line, you know, since you're, you're already familiar with financials and you know what you're looking at, definitely look at that piece of it to make sure that, that there isn't like a big chunk of net asset cash that needs to be distributed. Um, and then, yeah, they, you know, they, if they, they shared some projections about how they plan to fill the gap, um, what the, Second thing would be to, I would ask about what their budgeting process is, because if, if you miss your targets two years in a row, it, it makes me wonder how you're setting targets. So, so if it is a big problem, like maybe it's just that um, the development team says we can raise $4 million and the executive director says, that's not good enough, put in 4.5, right? Or something absurd like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's like the, the executive director is creating their own problem just by not budgeting properly, which is something that as a board member, you have 100% control over. That's the one thing that you really do have more control over than you might think, which is when the, the executive director comes in to present the budget for the year and says, we've budgeted this much. And you say, how did you come up with those proof? fundraising projections. Oh, well, we just took last year's and added 10%. Well, don't do that. <laughs> right. That's, you get to say that oh, as a board member. So typical, <laughs> so typical, sadly. Right. So, so it might be, and this is where, this is where your knowledge and your understanding of the financials and how nonprofits work in general is going to give you so much value when you're talking to this organization, which ultimately helps you, uh, do the because the mission and services are really close to your heart. This is going to help them uh, provide those services in a in a more effective way over the long run. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Just a reminder: this only works if you send us questions. So. Find us on Facebook, on the Nonprofit Everything webpage. You can reach out to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Get in touch with us. Ask us the questions, and we would be delighted to answer them for you. Thanks again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.